You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 19. We're going to be, uh, as I've been saying every week, we're continuing our study of the Psalms uh, this summer. In the words of Corey Reed, a summer in the Psalms. That still hurts me every time that I think about it, man. Like, But anyway, uh, before I begin, I want to publicly uh, thank Stephen Wallachek and John Gowdy for covering for me last week whenever I missed church. Uh, I'm sure they told you guys I was at the hospital with my family because my grandfather had a a heart attack, and uh, it was the night before his surgery, and I wanted to spend as much time with him as I could. Uh, But as Stephen uh, said in his prayer, he's come out. Um, He's just got a long, long road of recovery ahead of him, so we appreciate your continued prayers for our family. Um, but yeah, I'm really, really glad to be back and worshiping with you guys this week. Uh, I felt really weird missing church because I don't do that uh, ever, really. <laughs> and furthermore, I actually preached at another church this morning. And how do I say this? With no disrespect to them, it was, it was Robbie Day's church. I love that church. I, you miss home, right? Whenever you go somewhere else, you miss home. Uh, and our church is blessed uh, immensely um, with just having you guys here and Stephen with music and all that stuff. But anyhow, I'm just really glad to be back. Uh, it's comfortable here for me. Other people are weird. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I hope, Robbie, if you listen to this podcast, I hope you know that I love you. Uh, but anyhow, yeah, I'm just really grateful that I got friends that will step up and help whenever they're needed. Um, and God has been abundantly kind uh, to me for certain. Uh, but anyway, tonight we're going to be in Psalm 19. And this psalm is really beautiful, right? It's a psalm about God's revelation to mankind. And it's divided into two parts. The first part is verses 1 through 6 is about God revealing himself in creation. In theology, we call that the natural revelation of God. He literally reveals himself to all men in nature so that they're without excuse. They know that there's a creator. They know that he's omnipotent and uh, all-powerful, ever-present, creator of all things, owner of all things, and that they're a sinner, right? So God reveals at least that much to all men through through the creation. Uh, And the second part of this psalm, verses 7 through 14, is about God's special revelation, right? Which is even greater than the natural revelation. The special revelation of God is the scriptures, right? The word of God, uh, the Bible itself. So this evening, we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 14 uh, and seeing what the Bible says about the Bible itself, right? And just heads up, we're going to be spending most of our time on verses 7 through 9, Right, but you know, this past week I was actually spending some time uh, with Stephen and Farhad, uh, and we were talking about the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture um, over all people, uh, and especially over uh, believers. And that, that was just, it made me laugh uh, as we were having this conversation because it's really fitting that we talked about that, considering that this topic this evening is on the Scriptures themselves. Um, now, a lot of people try and downplay what the Bible says. Right? A lot of people. Um, obviously, unbelievers regularly take shots at the Bible. You see the stupid memes on Facebook, right? Like they're just horribly argued and annoying. But anyway, unbelievers are always taking shots at the Bible and trying to dispro- disprove it and find contradictions in it. And they're never successful at this. Um, I've tried myself to find them. 
They don't exist. The, again, if you, if you take a little bit of time to study out the passages, they can always be harmonized, and there's never a logical contradiction, but whatever. Um, they're never successful to provide these contradictions or, or errors in the scriptures. Uh, but what's wild, right, so we, we can see, okay, that's normal that an unbeliever would do that. But what's wild is that in recent decades, it has become really popular for even professing Christians and even professing evangelical Christians to begin to challenge the authority of, of the scriptures, Right, and this challenge to the authority of the Word of God really, um, as far as in Christian circles goes, started in the late 1800s. But here in the last probably three, four decades or so, it's become very popular and even has hit the mainline Protestant traditions. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of big name people that I'm sure you guys have heard of that, that challenge the authority of, of the Scriptures. People like Rob Bell and Jen Hatmaker and Jory Micah and Rachel Held Evans and many more people. We could keep going, but I don't want to take all the time that we need to, to name everyone that rejects the authority of the Word of God. Um, you know, and there are even some people in our area that are allowed to teach in churches that reject the authority of the Scriptures. Um, and I say that because I want you guys to know that this is a problem that is coming our way in a hurry. Right? Again, Sauda County is usually a couple of decades behind everyone else. Um, so it's, it's starting to come our way where you're getting these false teachers inside churches um, that reject the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Word of God. Um, you know, people will try to say, uh, whether they're professing Christians or not, that the Bible contains errors in it, that only portions of the Bible contain divine truth. Right? I believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, but it is not the Word of God, which is really stupid. Uh, and that certain parts of the Bible carry more weight than others. That's another one that you'll hear a lot. Um, sometimes people just flat out disagree with something written in the Bible and go their own way with their own thoughts and say something to the effect of, Scripture is just outdated and it needs revised and updated for modern times. You hear these kinds of things all the time, even amongst people who profess to know God. And this is complete trash. Right? This is just garbage thinking. Now, don't listen to this nonsense is what I'm saying. And it just, side note for a minute, it always makes me laugh. Right? It's always funny to me how people do this. Right? They'll pick and choose like from a buffet. Like, I like what Jesus said here in John, but I really don't like what Jesus said here in Revelation, so that must not be from God. Or I like what the Psalter says here in this psalm, but I really don't like what Paul says here because Paul's too mean. Right? It's like a buffet that they'll just pick and choose stuff. Um, and they'll claim that some parts are right and other parts aren't. But if you push them, they have no real standard by which they decide this is from God and this is not, aside from their feelings. Right? I, just, I, I don't think that this is from God. I don't feel like this really matches the character of God. Foolishness. There is no objective standard that they use. It's just a stupid subjective standard of why well, I just feel this way. And it always makes me laugh uh, that people do that. But just before we get any further, if you're currently dealing with some of these objections or have questions about this stuff, know that it's okay to ask questions, right? It really is okay to ask questions. I used to be an atheist. I asked a lot of these kinds of questions. Again, Stephen and a couple other guys would sit down and reason these things with me. So if you have objections or questions about this stuff, please come talk to Stephen and I, um, and we can sit down and have a good conversation about this. Um, but anyway, I said all of that to say this. What God has to say about the Bible is more important than what anyone else has to say about it. Right? It's more important than, it, 
You notice in the confession, again, we do everything on purpose here. We try to make it all flow together. What we confess together was that we can have a ton of different arguments to show you that the scriptures of the word of God, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all the glory to God, the majesty of the style, right, the consistency of the doctrine, all of those things that clearly evidence the Bible to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding all of that, we believe that the Bible is the word of God because it's from God. And it's because the Holy Spirit attests to our spirit that this is the word of God. So for all the arguments that we could give to you for why the Bible is the word of God, it's most important to look and see what does the Bible say about itself? What has God said about the word of God? And wouldn't you know, God in his wisdom has actually told us what he thinks about the Bible. Isn't that fantastic? And we're going to look at one of those passages this evening in Psalm 19. But my goal tonight is to give you all a big 30,000-foot view of what God says about the Bible in this psalm. And there's a lot to cover. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to be going super in-depth with all of the things that I'd like to. Because like every half verse of this psalm is its own sermon. And maybe someday we'll do a big two-month thing on this, just these three verses. uh, The first seven, eight, and nine. But in helping you guys to see what God has said about the Bible, I pray that God would increase your faith and your confidence in the Scriptures as the Word of God. And I pray that after coming to a greater confidence in the Scriptures, that you would see that the Bible is to be cherished as a precious treasure given to us by God that instructs us, is truthful and trustworthy, and ultimately points us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my goal this evening, that you would see what the Bible is and that you would cherish it. So without any more for introduction, let's go ahead and read our text. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you speak to us through them and that you reveal yourself to us in them. And Lord, I pray this evening that you would, by your grace, speak through the scriptures to us and use a weak sinner's preaching to help us to understand what your word says and what it means. God, do an act of sovereign grace this evening and let us come away with a greater respect and reverence and desire and love for for the word of God, that we might reverence it for what it is that we might seek to know you more deeply through it, that we might be, that we might trust it more and be confident in what you have said. Please grant that to us this evening, I pray. 
In Christ's name, amen. All right, so there are two things that I want you guys to know before we actually dig through these verses. Again, there's a lot of introduction for this one. Uh, The first thing that I want you guys to know is this. In verses 7 through 9, we see the words law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. Right? And these are all, in one way or another, referring to the whole of the scriptures, uh, just with varying emphases that we're not going to get into this evening. That was one of the things I kind of cut out for the sake of uh, time, because I don't want to be up here for an hour and a half, because you guys wouldn't let me. If you would let me, I would do it. Some of you fall asleep in 30 minutes anyway. Right? Anyway, I'm just kidding. I love you guys. Uh, but yeah, so again, all of those words, law, testimony, precepts, all of that, they're all referring to the entirety of the Word of God just with different emphases. So this whole passage, or rather the section verses 7 through 11, is about the entirety of God's Word. All right, so that's the first thing you need to know. It's about the entirety of the Word of God. And the second thing you need to know, or rather that I want you to see, is notice the repeated phrase, of the Lord, in these verses. Of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. This means from God. Simple, I know, but it means from God. So the law that is of the Lord, the law that comes from God. So this book is from Him, from the Almighty God. That's what David's highlighting to us. David's the author of this psalm. He's highlighting to us that the scriptures are from God. And what he does is he uses God's personal revealed covenant name, Yahweh. Right, That all caps, Lord, that's the covenant name of God. So what we see, and that's the name that God revealed himself as his personal name, what David's addressing to us is that this is God's personal revelation to man. It's of Yahweh, the covenant God. So, putting all this together, though the scriptures were written down by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which is what Peter tells us, right? Men, in fact, did pen this, right? We're not Muslims. The Quran didn't just fall out. Or the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky like the Quran did, or allegedly did. I sound like a heretic up here. The Quran is not from God. Moving on. Um, so though the scriptures were written down by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they are still from God. That's what David's saying. Even though men penned it, it's still the law of Yahweh. It's still Yahweh's word, the law of God, the word of God. Um, Now, this might not seem profound to you, but think about it. This smacked me like around Wednesday when I was thinking on this. This book is God's word. (laughs) Think about that. This book is God's word. It's from him. Right? What we hold in our hands every day, and I hope you hold it in your hands every day and actually open it and read it, right? but what we hold in our hands on a daily basis is from the mouth of Almighty God. It is His Word, the Creator and Sustainer, the Ruler, the Sovereign One over all things. This is what's come out of His holy mouth to us. It's His Word. And in light of that, let me give you some early application. We should respect and revere this book. Right? Not the paper and ink, not the leather binding. Right? Well, I'm not saying uh, to be like a, a Muslim that washes their hands seven times in their face and behind their ears and then they can pick up the book. I'm not saying that. But to have a holy fear and reverence, recognizing that God is speaking through this book to us. And I might add, it's the only way that God speaks to us since the age of the apostles. But knowing that God is speaking to us now, we should recognize that and approach this book with a reverence that we don't have for any other book. Since this is the word of God, we should recognize that this book is not like any other book. It's unlike, it's, it's in its own category. It should be respected. 
But too often we take this for granted and casually come to read the Bible as if it's nothing. Like, eh. Right? We don't put any effort into it. We don't sit and we don't think. We, we read it and we check it off our list and we shut the book and we don't think about it and we go on for the rest of the day. Maybe. Maybe. But this book is from God to tell us about him and what he has done and what he promises to do. Right? What I'm getting at is we must have a very high view of Scripture because it's from God. Let me give you a freebie, though, before we uh, actually pop into an exposition of this. Uh, this psalm is talking about the scriptures, and this psalm was inspired by God. So this is, to sound very Baptist, God's word about God's word, right? If I was going to title this, and I don't really title my sermons, but this is God's word about God's word, right? So let's bring our thinking about the Bible in line with what God has said about the Bible. So let's go ahead and reread verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So if you notice these first three verses, they follow a pattern. Right, the first bit of every line describes what the Bible is, right, what God's word is. And then the second half of every line tells us what it does as God works in and through it. Right, so first, what is the word of God? What, then second, what does the word of God do? So that's actually how we're going to be looking at this. I'm not going to go in order. First, we're going to look at everything that this, that this text says the word of God is. And then we're going to go and look at what does it do as God works in it. So how is Scripture described by God, and then what effects does God say that it has? So what does God say about his own word? In his holy wisdom, how does he describe the Scriptures? Well, first, we see that the Scripture is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. And that word here means complete, right? The Bible is comprehensive, right? That kind of a completeness, Right? The Bible is comprehensive. The scriptures tell us all that we need to know about salvation, about life, and godliness. All right? In other words, it's comprehensive, and we are not missing anything that we must know. Right? God has not left us in the dark on anything that is essential for us to know as his people regarding salvation, life, and godliness. Right? Now I'll say this, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. Right? Like, where should I go to school? How do I fix the muffler on my car that has broke twice this past week? Right? It doesn't tell us th- those kind of things. Maybe not everything we want to know. And there are like some legitimate hard life questions that the Bible just doesn't answer us. Because in the words of Tim Keller, we've been given information on a need-to-know basis. And God has said, you don't need to know that. Um, but anyway, the Bible does instruct us in all that God requires of us to be saved and to live a life that pleases him. It's perfect. It's comprehensive. And that should give us a lot of comfort that God's not left any part of anything that we need to know undone. He's given it to us. It's perfect. The second thing we see is that God's word is sure. It's sure. God is telling us that the Bible is reliable. Right? Think sure-footedness. It's sure. It's reliable. It is supremely trustworthy. And why is that? The Bible is trustworthy because it comes from God himself who is supremely trustworthy. And since it comes out of his holy mouth, it carries that quality of surety, right, of of trustworthiness. The book that we hold in our hands contains truth that we can stake our lives and our eternity on and never be let down. It's sure, 
Right? Everything else might let us down, but not the Word of God. It will never be incorrect in what it tells us. It will never guide us somewhere that we shouldn't go. It's sure and trustworthy. Right? And in an age where it's hard to find anything that you can trust from any source, anywhere, where lying flows out of our mouth like water down a river, culturally speaking, it's a blessing to have a ground of certainty and assuredness for us to stand on. It's sure. And because it is so trustworthy, we can derive so much comfort from it, knowing that it's never going to be wrong. It's a sure word from God. Third, we see Scripture is right. Right. Meaning it establishes a right path for us to walk in through this life. It tells us where to go. Right? So for all of the missteps, and you know this, you're a sinner, like be honest with yourself, for all of the missteps that you make on your own, all of the foolish decisions and just stupid things that you do on your own, the Bible points us towards safety and truth and directs us in the way that we should go that pleases our God. Right? It's like road signs, if you will, telling us, walk this way. Right? Like Run DMC and Aerosmith circa 1980-something, right? Like, walk this way. That's not even in the notes. Right here. That was really stupid. But again, the Bible tells us walk here, not there. And it's a well-worn, well-proved, trusted path that the people of God have walked in since the beginning. It's a well-proved, well-trusted path. The Bible directs us in our steps. Fourth, we see that God's Word is pure. This is probably my favorite one. It's pure. And the word pure here, it's this kind of purity means clear. Right? The Bible is clear. And praise God for that. It's clear. Think like it's pure, like pure glass that you can see through perfectly. Right? Or if you're a beach bum, think of that water that people are always taking pictures of and they can see their feet in it, which is gross. The ocean's nasty. Right? But pure. Right? You can see through it like glass or like clear water. And this kind of purity, is this, God is describing the fact that the Bible can be understood. It's clear. If you want your $5 word to feel smart in front of all your friends, this is the perspicuity of Scripture, right? We can see, we can understand what the Bible says. Right? This book that we hold is not a big mystery. It's not a big mystery. Contrary to what a lot of people think, and contrary to even what some preachers will tell you, this book is not a big mystery, Right? It's made up of words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters and books right? that can be analyzed, that have objective meanings. Right? Let me say that again for the people in the back. Right? Objective meanings. In an age of subjectivity, the Bible has an objective meaning. It means it, The author actually had an intent. It's not just, well, what do you think it means? No, it's what did the author try to get across. Right? It has an objective meaning that we can analyze and think on and cross-reference with other parts of the Scripture and reason through and come to understand. It's, it's, it's pure. We can see it. We can understand what the Bible says. Let me take a minute and say this. God is not a God of mysticism. All right, that junk is for pagans. Our God is not a mystic God. We don't sit and listen for God to speak or have to do this weird stuff with the Scriptures in order to understand it. No, we can read the Word of God if we want to hear Him, and we can understand it if we apply ourselves to it. Right, so in light of that, and again, an early point of application, don't be afraid of reading the Bible. I know some people that are scared to death of reading the Bible. 
all people can come to a sufficient understanding of the essentials of the faith and the essentials of life and godliness by reading and thinking about what they've read. Right? Not reading it and then shutting it and walking away, but read it and think about it. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, think on what I've written and God will grant you understanding. If we just read and think on it. Right? So don't be afraid to get in the Word daily and then think on what you've read. You can, by God's grace, understand what the Word of God says. But fifth, we see God calls His Word clean. Clean. Meaning, without corruption. Without error. Right? So the Bible, in other words, is inerrant. It's clean. It's without error or corruption. It's never wrong. And again, I've said this before, and you've heard this, I'm sure, through a lot of different preachers. But if you see something in God's Word that you don't like, or that you disagree with, or that rubs you the wrong way, then you are wrong. You are wrong. The Bible is not wrong. You're wrong. And you need to repent and adopt God's view of whatever it is that you are reading, no matter how uncomfortable that it might make you, because it's the Bible that is without error. And we are sinners and full of corruption and error. Again, I want to stress, this book is trustworthy. And it's trustworthy because God is trustworthy. And it is without error because God Himself is without error. The Bible will never instruct us in a wrong way because it comes from the infallible, holy, perfect God. It's His Word coming from His mouth carrying His qualities. And then the last thing that we read that the Bible is, is that it's true and righteous altogether. Those are lumped together, true and righteous all together, meaning that in its entirety, in the entirety of the Scriptures, God's Word is true, it's correct, and it's just. It's righteous. So whatever God has said to us in this book is inscrutable and unquestionable. Not meaning that we can't ask questions like, why would God do this or why would God say this? You can ask those questions. But at the end of the day, once we come to an understanding of what the text means, it is inscrutable and unquestionable in its righteousness. God is just always. His words and His actions are always proper and right. So whatever God has recorded Himself saying or doing or promising to do is comprehensively righteous. Even when we don't understand why or we don't like it at first. It is right and true because God is true and righteous in all that He does. So His Word is the same. So now that we've seen what Scripture is, right? let's check out what it does. And the first thing we see is that the Word revives the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. This is my favorite one of all the things that it does. Right? Now, the, the old King James Version says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Right? And revive carries the same kind of connotation. To revive something means to give life where there formerly was no life. That's what the Word of God can do as God works in it. So God is telling us that the truth that He has given to us has the ability to give spiritual life to spiritually dead people. That as God works through the Word, He regenerates and transforms people by the Word. That's what He does. He brings dead people to life and transforms them through His Word. He revives the soul. He gives life to and creates a whole new inner person through the Scriptures. Now this should make us sit back and just be stunned for a minute. Because right, we would have never thought this method up. Right? We would have thought something else. I'm sure something more uh, fantastic. 
right? Not something so ordinary. But God has appointed His Word as the means by which He saves sinners and draws them to faith in His Son. His Word, whether it be sung or read or preached or seen in the, in the sacraments, whatever it might be, it's His Word that saves people as it draws them to His Son as He works in it. This is why we preach. This is why we believe in the supremacy and sufficiency of the Scriptures. This is why we champion the Word of God as the strongest thing that we have. It's because we are so utterly dependent upon the Word. We are utterly dependent upon the Word of God to change us. Both to, both to convert us to Christ and save us. That we might come to a saving knowledge of Christ, rather, and also to sanctify us. It's the fun thought, just as God created the world by His Word, so He recreates sinners by His powerful Word. It's the same kind of idea here. He gives life through the Word, both physically and spiritually. And we can all attest to this personally, right? It's how we were saved. Think about your own conversion, if you can remember it. And if you can't, praise God that you were that young, that you can't remember. But we've heard God's Word proclaimed to us somehow, and God drew us to His Son through it, did He not? That's how we were saved. It revives the soul. Second, we see that the Word of God makes wise the simple. Now, I'm stealing this from John MacArthur because I don't read Hebrew. But simple, apparently Hebrew is a very hands-on kind of language. Simple means something like an open door. right? So a simple person is someone with a mind that is open but doesn't know when to shut the door. <laughs> doesn't know when to shut the door of the mind to ungodliness. right? You hear like old-timers say, your mind's so open that your brain's going to fall out. right? That's kind of what a simple person is here in the Bible. Right? To have a mind so open that you don't know when to shut it. This is a person who doesn't know how to discern godliness from ungodliness and lacks discernment. But here are the scriptures make people wise. To be wise means to be skilled in living. Knowing how to apply the word of God to your life. Right? The Bible shows us what to accept and what to reject. In other words, God instructs us in how we are to live that's what he does through the scriptures. And what a grace to us that that is. I know I quote or paraphrase this all the time. John Calvin hit the nail on the head whenever he said, we are like blind men groping around in darkness until the word of God shines light and shows us where to go. You don't know how many errors that we might take if the word of God did not um, make us wise and then show us what to reject and what to accept. And by the word of God, we can avoid foolishness and error and unnecessary pain because it makes wise the simple. Third, we see that it rejoices the heart. Right? Scripture brings us joy. This is what he's saying. True, lasting peace. Right? So as we look to the Bible, and as we see God's promises to us, we have joy, do we not? And I believe that that's what he's talking about. The things God has done, the things God has promised to do for his people brings joy to our hearts. Right? These promises of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not our own works. That it's not by our merits that we're going to be saved, but it's by the merits of another one. Christ that saves us. The promise that Jesus has borne our guilt on the cross and has suffered the wrath of Almighty God in our place so that God has no wrath for us anymore. The promise that that work of Christ is ours through trusting what He has done, through believing God's promise that He has done it. The promise that God owns us as His children through Christ. That we're no longer children of wrath, but children of God. 
The promise that holiness and freedom are ours. We're free from sin and free to live a life of holiness to God. The promise that our suffering has purpose. That we're being sanctified in the midst of our suffering. The promise that God will never forsake us. And that beautiful promise that those who are in Christ will see Him face to face someday. All right, and these are just some of the truths of the Bible. These are the big ones, but there are more than this. All right, but these truths found in the Bible give peace to the hurting and rest to the weary and joy to the heart of the people of God. And that's what I think the psalmist is getting across to us. Is it gives us joy as we consider what God has done and what He promises. Fourth, we see that the Word of God enlightens the eyes. Right? It casts out darkness from the person. Is what it means to have your eyes enlightened. It lets us see things clearly. In other words, Scripture provides a proper worldview for the Christian to live by. Right? It purges falsehood from our worldview and lets us see clearly for the first time. Right? And in, 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 you know, in a world that constantly fights to persuade us to various beliefs and, and just a bunch of other silly things, the Word points out godless flaws in worldly systems and opinions and politics and the like. And it guides us past the errors and allows us to see what God thinks and to help us find the truth. Again, we're in darkness without God's word. We're liable to, to take on anything that seems right to us, which is usually the people of God's problems, instead of saying, what has God said? What worldview has God provided me? Instead, we say, this seems right to me. But God's provided us a clear worldview. He's enlightened our eyes through his word. And then lastly, we see that the Word of God endures forever. And I love this, that David ends on all the things that the Word does. He ends with not what it does to us, but just what it does on its own. The Word of God endures forever. Everything else may pass away, but the Word of God stands eternal. It will never change, and it cannot be changed. It's as unchangeable and immutable as God Himself it endures. The truth of the Bible will always be true and has always been true. The promises, the threats, the blessings, the, the, the punishments, everything, all of the truth contained in this book is eternal. The Word of God will not fade. It's a rock for us to stand on that stands the test of time. It's eternal. It's eternally relevant Right? Other things may pass in and out of fashion as the years go by, different trends and this and that, but not this book. It endures forever because God himself endures forever and his word will not fail. So, since God's word, just blast through them, is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean, true and righteous, and since it revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, and endures forever, let me ask you a question. What more could we ask for? What else do you want? Like in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, what more can he say than to you he hath said? What else do you want? If the Word is these things, or rather since the Word is these things, and since it is powerful enough to do these things, what else do we want? 
Aside from Jesus Christ Himself, the Bible is the greatest gift that God has ever given to fallen man. Period. God has revealed Himself to us, told us what He expects of us, given His commandments, warned us of the wrath to come against the ungodly, tells us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and promises to reward those who strive to live by His Word in faith. He's told us all of this and much more through the Scriptures and nowhere else. What else do we want? Why wouldn't we want this book? Why wouldn't we love this book? Why wouldn't we desire this book and desire it above all other things that we could have? Why would we not have that kind of a feeling in our heart towards the Scriptures? That's why the psalmist says this in verses 10 and 11, More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. That's why he says this. What else do we want? The Bible is to be our greatest treasure. We should desire it more than money. More than your homes. More than even your relationships with other people. We should desire the Word. More than our food. More than anything else that we have. The Word of God is such a grace to us that we should cry out to God, Lord, take everything from me, but leave me Your Word. Because without it, I'm lost and I can't find my way. Without it, I don't know how I should live. Without it, I have no true knowledge of You. Without it, I don't know how to be saved from my sins and Your wrath. Because apart from the truth of God, I am undone. That should be our heart towards the Scriptures. More to be desired are they than anything. But sadly, for many professing Christians, this is not their heart towards the Bible. And I know that we all kind of wax and wane on this, don't we? Back and forth. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But many professing Christians view reading and studying and meditating on the truths of this book as a chore. And they don't order their lives around what God has spoken in His Word. How foolish is this? Since the Word is everything that God says it is, how foolish can we be to not read it and not meditate on it and not order our lives around it? So let me say this. If this is you, if I've just described, maybe it's just you recently, like maybe you've, you've, you've felt cold towards the Word of God, you need to get on your face before God and repent. And ask for forgiveness for neglecting such a grace to you. And we know that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including the neglect of His Word. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And after asking forgiveness and repenting, get in the Word. Get in it and love it. And take advantage of this precious treasure and live by it. But to push further, now that we've seen what Scripture is and what it does and how it is to be our greatest treasure, let's see what our response should be after spending time in the Word. I believe that's what David goes on to in verses 12 through 14. After spending time in the Word and just reflecting on what all it says and its perfections, he says this, Who can discern his errors? (laughs) Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So after looking at the perfection and beauty of the word and seeing its instruction and doctrines and guidance and promises and law, the psalmist says, who can discern his errors? That's that's his first conclusion. After seeing God and meeting with God in his word, he says, I don't even know how sinful that I really am. Who can discern all of his errors? He says, I, I, I can see how much I have not lived in accordance with what God has said. I can see my errors, and I can't even number them all. can't discern all of them. And after encountering God and His Word, we should come away seeing our faults and our sins. The vast majority of the time, that should be what happens to us. Even when we leave encouraged after reading the Word and seeing one of God's great promises to us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can say, I don't believe that like I should. I might accept it on some level, but I'm not wholesale sold out to this truth a lot of the time. We should always leave seeing our inadequacy and being humbled and seeing our sins. And Scripture should humble us. It never breeds arrogance. But we should see that how we've ignored and disobeyed what God has said. And we might even become aware that we've been sinning and didn't realize it. And seeing this in ourselves should drive us to do what the psalmist does. He asks for forgiveness. He says, declare me innocent. That's what he asks. And that also should remind us something. Salvation comes by God's declaration, not man's work. He doesn't say, let me do this, and then you forgive me. He says, God, please declare me innocent. Justify me. Declare me to be righteous. He asks for forgiveness. And then he asks to be made holy. He says, hold me back from my sins. And let everything that I say and think, right, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, be acceptable to you, O God. He says, forgive me and make me holy. What I thought was beautiful, and you may have missed this in verse 14, ultimately, the Word of God drives us back to its author. After seeing the perfection of Scripture in our own sin, we're pushed to cry out for mercy and grace from our rock and redeemer. This is the end game of being in the Word of God. We're pushed to cry out for grace and strength from our rock, right? Our strength so that we might walk according to his holy word. That we might be more obedient. And we're pushed to cry out to our redeemer for mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. Our rock and redeemer. Everything contained in the word of God is meant to drive us to our redeemer. It's meant to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for all of the beauty and goodness of God's commandments and instruction, and there is no flaw in them, for all of its beauty, we cannot obey them perfectly, and we do not walk in accordance with them perfectly. The Word of God is grace to us to show us how to live and to tell us what God demands and would have us to do. But the greatest grace of the Word of God is that it drives us to the Redeemer. That's the greatest perfection of the Word of God is that after being in it, we're driven to the Savior. After we consider what all it says and we see our inability to walk in perfect accord with God's Word, we see that we're condemned to suffer His wrath for our disobedience, but then we see that God has provided for us a Savior in Jesus. We're pushed to the Redeemer. 
And Scripture points us to both of those truths. God demands it. You can't keep it, but God has provided a Savior. Thank God for His Word that shows us our sin and then points us to the Christ. But I've got three things for us to consider in light of this text. And I know I've been up here for a long time. I'm going to try to be brief. The first is this. I want you to love the Word and be in the Word and respect it and cherish it and believe it and walk by it and look to it in all situations. But beware of making the Bible into an idol. And I think everyone in the Reform camp can say amen. Because we've all done this at one point or another. I would wager anyone who likes to study theology or really get in to the deep parts of Scripture or the hard things to study, we all have a temptation to read the Bible as just this source of information. And it doesn't lead us to worship. You know, some people have accused the Reformed tradition of believing in Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. It's true. Shame on us. May that never be said about us here. We are not bibliolaters. Hear me out. We love the Bible because it is from God, and in it, God has spoken and revealed Himself. We do not worship the Bible, but we love it because it points us to the God that we are to worship. We love Scripture because it is a reflection of God Himself. Right? Think about this, verses 7 through 9. God alone is perfect and sure, pure, clean, true, and righteous. It is God alone who revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, and endures forever. It is God who rewards and warns His people. It is God alone who is to be desired above all things. And the Scripture is an accurate reflection of who God is because it comes from Him. That's why we love the Word of God. To sum up why we love the Word of God, I would say this. We love the Bible because the people of God have a relationship with God based on the Word of God because in it, He reveals Himself and our sin and our Savior. Only in the Word. So do not make an idol out of so beautiful a gift to us. Second, be humbled by the Word. Verse 12 and 13. Declare me innocent. That's what, the, that's what happened to David as he pins this. Be, he's humbled. See the perfection of God's instruction and behold your own sin and your own rebellion and your own imperfection. Be humbled by it. You know, the knowledge of the word should always produce humility, repentance, and renewed faith and desire for holiness. It should never promote arrogance. Let me say that again. The reading of the Word of God and the understanding of the Word of God should never promote arrogance. If it does, we're not reading it right. If it does, we're reading it like Pharisees. Even if you read a portion of Scripture and you say, I am doing that really well right now, you should still be driven back to Christ and humbled because why are you doing that portion of Scripture well? Why are you walking in obedience? Because God has set you free from sin and empowers you to obedience. You should still be humbled even whenever you see how well you're doing. Because Scripture drives us to Christ, which brings us to our last point. Let every part of God's Word drive you to God's Son. Always. Always. That's God's ultimate goal in giving us His Word. That we would daily meditate on the Word and continually run back to Jesus Christ our Lord. 
every day allow yourself to be driven back to your rock and redeemer. May God increase our love for his word given to us. That should be our prayer. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you. We thank you so much for this book that you've given to us that has been faithfully recorded and passed down from generation to generation, that has stood the test of time, that has endured so many attacks because it is the perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to believe what your word says. Help us to trust the promises, to believe the doctrines, to walk according to the commandments, to adopt the worldview of your word, which is to adopt your worldview. Lord, in a nutshell, what we're asking is that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. That's what your son prayed before he was crucified. Lord, we ask that you would honor his prayer and make our prayer his. Sanctify us by the word of God. Help us to leave here with a zeal and renewed passion to study and meditate upon it and not just to understand it, but so that we might live by what your word says. Grant this to us, Lord, by your sovereign grace, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.